Father, we thank you for this privilege again to get together as women, to encourage one another with the word, to hear from you, Lord. That's why we come. We want to hear your voice. We want to know more of Jesus. And so now, Lord, as we quiet our hearts, we ask that you would speak to each of us, Lord. You've already convicted me real good on this lesson, and I'm sure that others feel the same, and we really want to hear from you, Lord, because then change can come about. As we sang this morning, change my heart, O oh Lord, and how I ask for that for myself and for anyone else that wants to have a changed life, more godly, more Christ-like. Oh God, begin with me. And we'll give you the praise, Lord, for all that you're going to accomplish here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to open up to 1 John chapter 3, we start in verse 10. According to tradition, John, when he was very old, had to be carried to the meeting uh, where the Christians met. And then every time he came, he continued to remind them of God's commands. And you can almost picture him in your mind. Here he is in his 90s, and you can just almost see him putting out his finger. The folks that had banded around, he said, my little children, <laughs> love one another. Could he make it any clearer? I don't know. And they might have even gotten tired of hearing the same instruction each week. But this is the one command of the Lord. If believers could just attain just this, that one thing would be enough. Imagine that. If you were to sum it all up, how well do we love? And that's not the feeling kind of love. That is the love that is action. Yes, I hope you all got that word this morning. So in verse 10, it starts out, And the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Be careful. <laughs> Be very careful. But he gives us a standard here. Who does not obey God's commands and does not love others does not belong to God. Very, very black and white. John doesn't give us any gray area. He just makes it very black and white. But God's children must be loving, and yet many of us fail in this department. So often today there is even dislike among Christians. I don't know if mentally you can picture your church, but you know, there's little factions going on, especially among the women it seems. But I guess it happens with the men too. Churches struggle with issues that divide members. You know, just bring up music, that's good enough for uh, <laughs> dividing things doesn't take much, but all churches need to work on love and harmony because Jesus wanted his followers to be unified as a powerful testimony or a witness to the community. And then we need to think about our churches there, you know. What kind of testimony do we have that goes out? Are people flocking to our churches because they'll know they'll be loved? It's a good question. Well, God's children <clears throat> must be learning to know what love is all about, and we really struggle with it. Believers must help to unify their churches, and how can you do that? Well, you begin to pray for the people that you know in your churches and others that you've made acquaintances with. You need to uh, avoid gossip. You need to hold others up. I think if I were asked to be part of a group, 
and they just sat around talking about any other Christian, I wouldn't belong to that group. That would be my standard right there because it's so divisive. In verse 11, John says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Here we get it again. And you think, whoa. He just continuously repeats himself. Consider the people God has placed in your life. If your love for them characterized by cautious restraint, or do you apply your love at full strength? And I thought about that this week, and I thought, no, I have restraints. Not with my family members, but church members. I think I've been hurt many times. And then you get so you kind of put a veil up or curtain up, and God doesn't want that. So that's where I have to work this week. I've got to purpose to not let that happen because it's not of him. He doesn't want veils. Nothing between you and other people because they read that. So I'm guilty of that. And the interesting thing is here with John, then he, where does he go? He goes right to Cain and Abel. And I thought that was uh, amazing. Suddenly he sticks these two guys in. Uh, he says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. His own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. John brings this in here right at this point so his readers could understand the terrible consequences of refusing to love one another. It simply just led to Abel's death. Now, in Leviticus, you say, well, what was wrong with his offering? In Leviticus, we pick up, for those few who have studied that with me, we pick up the grain offering. It's very acceptable to God, but there's always a blood offering with it, and the blood offering uh, as I remember, it comes first. And so that was part of the problem here, but it was the real problem is one of the heart. That was very evident. We know that Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden. How did God cover up their nakedness? He took a couple of animals and killed them and then skinned them. You can imagine the bloody mess it was. And then he probably showed them how to tan it and then sew it together and make clothing out of it. It probably stayed in their mind's eye forever all that blood because of their sin and I'm sure the Lord instructed them along those lines so what was the problem here his heart was not accepted but his brothers was and the wonderful thing about Cain is that God came to him remember this is long before the law or anything else and he spoke to him you know if you do right you're on the right path if you don't you know sin's lying at your door well, Cain could care less, couldn't he? And uh, he went right out from there, and he killed his brother. And there's absolutely no remorse recorded. In fact, God put a mark on Cain so that he'd be identified, and other people wouldn't kill him or attack him or whatever else. And he felt that was too great for him to bear, just a mark. And yet you don't have any thought of uh, remorse because he had killed his brother or he missed him or anything else. Now there's a couple other things that are really important here with Cain and Abel and that is that by the time Cain had killed Abel there was mathematically they figure there's 22,000 people on the earth. You know you have to remember it's before television and all our other little game things we have. <laughs> they didn't have much to do and that's why I'm sure that they passed it right on to uh, their children the enormity of sin and who God is and how they had once walked with him. 
the one thing I want you to remember is that Cain represents an evil line and it goes all the way through scripture to the cross and Abel represents a godly line and that goes all the way through until Jesus comes because you know obviously there were so many people born but God has recorded those two things because he wants you to know that this is the way of evil and this is the way of godliness and that was very helpful for me to learn that so I just pass that along to you Cain demonstrates those who belong to the evil one. Cain's anger, then jealousy, or maybe it was jealousy and then anger, but what had happened to it was out of control and it led to murder. John says a lack of luck can lead to this jealousy and anger and hatred and to murder. And I was thinking about that. How about in our churches? Well, Mrs. Smith got asked to do a solo and I got overlooked or the pastor asked Josephine uh, over for lunch with his wife. How come he's never asked me? And so forth. It doesn't take a whole lot. And we have no clue what humility is all about. But as we pray for other Christians, avoiding gossip and holding others up in the church, we work together in humility. And you're going to get that question next week, so watch out for it. And our whole point is to exalt Christ and not cause any division. If you're with somebody that's gossiping about somebody in the church, just walk away. It's the best lesson they can hear. There's always gossip around, and there's, it divides and it hurts people. Well, Cain and Abel's sacrifice was, um, he sacrificed with his life. And it seems like that's the direction we're going in this world, that Christians may indeed have to sacrifice their lives is the way it's going. So Cain demonstrated who he belonged to and something for us to remember. Jealousy it so easily creeps in or comment. We take a comment and we run with it. Instead of going to the throne, we go to the phone or we're so quick to pass it on to somebody else. So watch it. We need to be known as people who love God. Then we go on to verse 13, it says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Ah, I don't like that. <laughs> but there's real reasons for why the world hates Christians or hates the light. First one is because we make them feel very uncomfortable about how they are living. We met a couple last Sunday. It was their first time to church, and they've been living with each other for nine years. And he introduced her as his girlfriend, and she spoke up real quick, well, we're, it's like we're married. So I thought, isn't that so typical? Our pure lives act as lights that expose the impurity in their lives. And they don't like that. And guilt, or maybe shame, they lash out at us. We make them feel uncomfortable about what will happen in the future. You know, we talk about it pretty glibly that the Lord's going to return and there's going to be a great tribulation and there's going to be a rapture of the church. And they hear that and they think, whoa. <laughs> now they just as soon ignore that kind of truth because that forces them to think about it and maybe they might have to make a decision. And of course that's against what they think is right. So in fear they try to silence us and they love the darkness rather than the light. Don't ever forget that. It's, I felt for this couple because they hadn't been in church before and I thought, whoa, that's an awful lot of light. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure they felt very uncomfortable. Well, what do you do if you're with people that are, are like that? 
And the first thing that we must remember not to do is to hit them with scripture. We don't need to even open our mouths. All you need to do is to try to love them. I have written down in my notes, shut up. <laughs> and just love them. Cain and Abel, you know, were such an example of Cain not having any sorrow and he was no loss of his brother. What a deal. It's godly versus the ungodly. Then in 14 and 15, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That it, notice it doesn't say you like them. You need to love them. And you can't like everybody. I mean, we just all have personalities that have a tendency to grate on some people, all of us. You know, how can that be? You know, I'm such a wonderful person. But it's true. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. The Lord says in the Gospels, if you even harbor it in your heart, and I'll say, but God, you don't know how I feel right now. You know, and he says, get rid of it. So I had to throw that question in about David and Moses. God doesn't allow these men to Whereas verse 15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what about Moses and David? And you could toss Paul in there too. Paul had murder in his heart when he went after the new Christians. It's, uh, Moses was trying to deliver his, uh, the people out of Egypt one person at a time. I'll just kill them off. <laughs> However, God had a better plan. So God put him out in the back 40 for 40 years. And I'm sure he just really struggled in his heart for what he had done. And by the time God gets a hold of him when he's 80, he just feels he's just totally incompetent. But he isn't, and you and I know it because we see the whole picture. He had been brought up in the palace. He knew Egypt better than anybody else. It's just it's amazing. After all, he was an adopted son of the Pharaoh. But here we have then David. Well, poor David. Every time I teach the life of David, I always wish I could stop before chapter 11 in 1 Samuel because that's when David stayed home from the war and he went out looking and uh, he commits adultery and then he commits murder and he lies about it, he covers it up, shoves it all under the carpet but God saw it, God knew and David thought he had gotten away with it but God raised up Nathan the prophet and Nathan went and gave him a little parable and he knew immediately it was him. And the glory of David is the fact that when he was confronted, he knew how he had sinned against God. And oftentimes you and I will sin and we just kind of, well, I was sinning against my husband or I was sitting against my neighbor, but you see, it's all this way. Sin is vertical, it goes to God. And he knows and he sees. In some right way we think that we get away, from, away with it. David, we wouldn't have Psalm 35 and Psalm 51 and some of those other marvelous psalms that David wrote after he had done this horrible thing. And he knew how terrible his sin was against God. Against you and only you have I sinned. That's always troubled me. Because I thought, wait a minute, you killed Uriah and you committed adultery and the child died. How about that? Isn't that against people? No, because, you see, the sin was against God, because God had set up the rules. And that's why David expressed that, against you and only you have I sinned. And I think that's 
what, where you and I need to come to real grips with sin is not this way, it's this way. And it's very serious, obviously. Well, we'll go on here with, by this we know love in verse 16, because he laid down his life for us, and we also lay down our lives for the brethren. Well, what does that mean? I go out and die? No, it's laying down your will. We had an example of that this week with a leader. She was had her all her plans all set for a particular day. She had taken her friend to the airport, and then she had this big car. She had to drive back to her house because her friend did not want it left at the airport. And so out there it's sitting, and then she thinks, "Boy, I have tomorrow morning. I'm all free. Uh, I can call my ladies and da da da." And uh, sure enough, somebody from the church calls and wants a, needs a ride to the doctor's appointment. And she's very crippled up. There's no way she could have gotten into her little car. But she had this great big car in front of her house. So isn't it interesting how God set it all up and all she had to do was get with the program, and that is to put down her will in the direction she was going for the day. So that's what it means. It's to be very sensitive to putting down your will for others. Sometimes we really try to not do that. And it's loss, you know, don't beat yourself up. We all have missed the boat. All of us had opportunities where God could bless us and we've missed it because we weren't tuned in. Oh. We had major problems on our hearts or in our lives and we just couldn't hear the person when they were calling how much they needed help. But I just say, don't beat yourself up. It's really the idea of laying down your life with no thought of return. You know, love is an action word here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say that he felt like it. And you, and especially women, so get this all hung up with feelings. Well, I have to feel something. No. This agape love, or God's love, is strictly an act. It's fun, though, to see how God will give you the love and, and he'll give you the energy and a few other things that you didn't think you had if you do it his way. So then I asked that terrible question, in what specific way could you lay down your life for a family member or a friend today? That's really important thing to think about because there's some husbands that really get left out. It's easy to run off and have coffee with a friend, but it might be another thing to pour a cup of coffee for your husband. Well, he's got two legs. He can get up and get it. Yeah. But it's those little things. I was just thinking about my daughter. <laughs> Her husband went out and bought some coffee that she likes. He's never done that before. She about fell over dead. <laughs> but she saw that as really a, a, a love thing. And my husband, I better not brag on him. <laughs> but he brings me coffee every morning. And so, so I better be nice to him, huh? Yeah. He also types these lessons up for you, so. <laughs> and works in the nursery when we need him. So he's, yeah, he, see, here's action. I might think, well, I might rather have this and this and this, you know, but he's demonstrating it his way. And sometimes we just turn off our husbands because we wanted him to demonstrate it our way. And that hurts man. Anyway. But as it goes on to say, whoever has this world's gifts, goods rather, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now that doesn't mean you go out and find every homeless person or every hard case. It'll be just the person God puts right in front of you. 
like the story I read this morning in the opening of where this woman was standing next to this child who had no shoes on in very cold weather, and she had the money to be able to take him in the store and buy him socks and shoes. It's that type of thing. Of course, then he thought maybe she was Mrs. God, which I thought was really cute, because <laughs> he had been praying for a pair of shoes. You know, it might even hurt or cost you to do some of these little love things. You know, my time, my effort, but just take a good hard look at the cross and remember what God wants from us, putting others ahead of ourselves. Well, real f love like faith is an action word. And just remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And that's the thing to remember. 19 and 20. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Just underline that deed. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I remember when I was a brand new believer and the light of God's word came into my life, it was terrible. There wasn't anything right in my life. I would just felt so condemned. I felt like I had a neon sign on my forehead that said, sinner, sinner, sinner. Of course, it was all true. <laughs> I think I could be so far removed from the Lord. And then when he comes into your life, it was like, oh, boy, where do we start? And that's when I, that time I told him, we'll find somebody else to make holy because I'm just not going to be, <laughs> I'm not going to be any good at this. Well, this little blurb I picked up in the uh, Living Bible application commentary. Greater than our hearts, John understood that it is common for some believers to have an overactive conscience. Yep, that was true of myself. In light of God's high and holy command to love others as Christ has loved us, believers may feel like terrible failures or even hypocrites. This kind of self-condemnation, John wrote, should be met by the truth that God is greater than our hearts. In other words, the all-wise Lord above is aware that true believers, even though plagued by inconsistency, how true that is, still have an underlying desire to obey him and the challenge to love others. The point of this passage don't be overly hard on yourself and don't let guilt overwhelm you. Instead of focusing on your failures, focus on the Father who knows your deep desire to do what is right. Isn't that true? There's a little side issue here. It says, our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, ne negligent, or careless, but on the contrary, it awakens us, urges us on, and makes us active and living righteous lives and doing good. There's no self-confidence to compare with this. In other words, it's much greater than our conscience. Our conscience can get us into trouble. I think the thing is that, how, how do you know? I, in fact, I wrote that in, this was a good question I didn't ask. I think Charlotte Hunt came up with it. How do you know where this condemning is coming from? You know, Satan condemns. God instructs is a big difference. He does it very gently. And he usually does it when you're least thinking about it even. He'll just put his little finger on my sin, and I think, oh, terrible. And he gives me that understanding. I'm then looking at it from his perspective and how displeasing it is to him. He doesn't condemn. If you get a feeling condemned, you know, you know it's the enemy. And you've got a lot of resources against that. You have the armor, 
You have those promises. What do you say? We've already studied this year. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. It's, it's just great how God works. God wants us not to listen to the devil and his false ac accusations. Remember, he's the great accuser. He wants to make you look bad because Christ lives within you. And sometimes that's real easy for him to do, isn't it? If believers demonstrate the love of the Lord by their actions, they don't constantly be wondering whether God will accept them or not. They know he accepts them. You know, that's the thing to hang on to. You can rest in that fact, claiming God's forgiveness, and then Christ demonstrates to believers they can overcome confidently. But then we have these what-ifs in our life. What if I've had an affair? What if I've had an abortion? What if I've had something else major, like the pastor who got drunk coming up from Willow Park, and he lost control of his car and killed two little girls in their front yard up here at Proctor and Redwood? What if? And I'll tell you something, God is much bigger than all of that. Tragic things happen, and you can't keep beating yourself of it. What does Jesus invite us to do in Matthew 11? Come, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You live with the consequences, just like David lived with the consequences of his sin. And it was really downhill for him. But you're cleansed. If you seek God's forgiveness, you are cleansed and stay there. Think on that. It's a lot to live with, though, isn't it? And that even that, God can give you the comfort that you need and to be able to go on and to, to live for him. We all make stupid, stupid, tragic mistakes from time to time. And I praise God that he's always there. Sometimes our past plagues us, but you have to remember that Jesus is the great I am. I am that I am. Where is he? He's right now. He's in the present. So if you go back and live in your past, he's not there. And boy, will that condemn you. And you'll think, boy, I wish I'd done this, or if I had only done that. And But who's plaguing you? The Lord's not in the past, and he's ever in the present. Or if you borrow trouble from the future, well, what if? What if I did this? Or what if there's a big earthquake? What if, you know, we can just go crazy. Always remember, he's right here in the present. And live in the present. If you would live just today before him, and then tomorrow you live your day before him, pretty soon all of your days add up to a life well spent. Besides, our God is the God of the if-onlys, the what-ifs that want us to borrow trouble. In the very last verse, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So he's right back to abiding, isn't he? And that's keeping those short accounts. I keep reminding myself, I'm just a branch. I'm just a branch. But the beauty of being a branch is that the Lord, being the vine, puts the his power through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're available to him, then he's able to reach the unlovely or the unsaved or whatever. If you'll just be open to him and allow his energy and his heart to work through you. Otherwise, pruning may happen. Pruning's always painful. It always seems like he uses other Christians to prune us. But guess what? More fruit comes from it, and that's what we want, isn't it? Father God, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you, Lord, that you're such a great God. You know all of us, Lord, inside and out. You, you even knew us 
in, your mo in our mother's womb. You even knew us before time began. That's just so beyond us. Lord, you know what our thoughts are now. We want to learn to be women of the word. We want to be women of God. We want to make a difference. Lord, help us not, like myself, to put a veil over my face when it comes to loving others, but to really and truly take that down and love without reservation. Lord, I know that there might be someone here today that hasn't entered into that faith, hasn't entered into following you or knowing you, and I pray, Lord, that they might reach out today and say, Lord Jesus, I need you as my Savior. Come into my life. I need you to cleanse me, to make me your child. I want to abide in you. I want to be your child, as John talks about. And for others, Lord, of us that have hardened up our hearts towards maybe some that really truly need that touch, Lord God, forgive us and help us not to harden our hearts, but to be available to your spirit to love others. And oh God, we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.